Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson is now confirmed as the next Supreme Court Justice. The Senate voted this afternoon and there were a few Republican votes to confirm President Biden's pick to the nation's highest court. A judge rules that it was reasonable for a January 6th defendant to be in the Capitol. So what does this mean for the hundreds of other defendants facing the same charge? Two men accused of posing as Homeland Security personnel and bribing Secret Service agents in Washington, D.C. in an alleged attempt to get close to the First Lady. A judge that was appointed by former President Bill Clinton is set to judge a lawsuit against Hillary Clinton. The judge was asked to recuse himself, but he declined, saying he will be impartial while judging the case. The United Nations votes Russia out of the Human Rights Council, but Russia denies reports that its troops are committing human rights abuses in Ukraine. Today on Capitol Hill, the Senate confirmed Katanji Brown-Jackson to the nation's highest court. Vice President Kamala Harris was on the Hill to mark the moment. NTD's Melina Weiskup has the details for us tonight. The yeas are 53, the nays are 47, and this nomination is confirmed. This afternoon, all Democrats, as expected, happily voted to confirm President Biden's pick to the nation's highest court. Right after that vote, Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee came and spoke to reporters. I asked them what went into their decision-making process. Chairman Durbin told me that it's, it's Jackson's perseverance and dedication that stood out to him, while Senator Klobuchar told me that it's her down-to-earth and relatable personality that hit home for her. Let's listen. They also saw when she was asked about being a mom, <laughs> and she said, I'm not always perfect. I try my best. And there was something about how she answered questions about her faith and about her own uh, world around her and how she felt as a person that I thought was pretty unique compared to a lot of other nominees. Now, joining all 50 of those Democrats with the yes vote were three Republican senators. As expected, those were Collins, Murkowski, and Romney. And the reason why those three senators voted yes, all for very similar reasons. They say that after meeting with Jackson one-on-one, -on -one, she left a very great impression on them. Murkowski specifically says that she didn't want to feel forced to vote one way or the other, simply based on the political party of the sitting president. Now, what's interesting about all the other Republicans who voted no, they said something similar. They all said that they believe Jackson does have a great personality and that she is very smart, but they told us they're concerned about her record. Senator Ted Cruz specifically says he's concerned about her record on sentencing. I asked him to be a bit more specific about that. Here's a bit of that exchange. What specific consequences are you concerned about? How will it impact our nation? I am concerned that she will vote over and over and over again to release violent criminals from jail. She will vote over and over and over again to overturn capital murder convictions, to strike down death penalty sentences. She will vote over and over and over again to strike down serious punishments for sex offenders. And after Jackson is confirmed to the court, it won't change the makeup of the court. The Supreme Court will still be conservative-leaning. Jackson is expected to be seated after Justice Breyer's retirement later this summer. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. 
And staying in Washington, D.C., no jail time for a New Mexico man who was acquitted of four misdemeanor charges in connection with the January 6th incident. A federal judge ruled yesterday that Matthew Martin's actions were minimal and non-serious. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. Matthew Martin is one of three January 6th defendants to have his case resolved by a trial, but he is the first to be acquitted of all charges. Martin was charged with four misdemeanors, including entering and remaining in a restricted building and disorderly conduct. District Court Judge Trevor McFadden said it was reasonable for Martin to believe that officers allowed him to enter the Capitol, despite alarms blaring and broken glass spread across the floor. Martin had testified that a police officer waved him into the building after the riot erupted. Robert Jenkins, a Virginia attorney representing six Capitol breach defendants, said he is encouraged by the judge's ruling. Does this strengthen um, your pending cases? Do you think this will make your cases stronger for your clients? Well, yes. I mean, I, my, my, my first reaction upon hearing the acquittal was that this is very encouraging for any defendant who is charged with a similar offense, uh, who there's clear evidence that they certainly entered the Capitol building. Jenkins said there were two other trials last month, but he believes this is the first time a judge said it was reasonable for a defendant to enter the building. He noted that every defendant will have to explain why they were in the building. Guy Reffitt and Coy Griffin were convicted in the other two trials. Griffin was also acquitted by McFadden of a disorderly conduct charge, but convicted on a charge of trespassing while the vice president was in the building. Guy Womack, a Houston attorney who was representing two January 6 defendants, said the trespassing charge is more serious than Martin's charge of being in a restricted building. A little bit different offense if... Um if it's perceived as a threat uh, or some danger to the vice president of the United States, uh, it's an actual element of that offense. Jenkins said the vice president's presence in the building is not what makes Griffin's charge more serious. Rather, it is the intent of the defendant that matters. But the government has to establish that you either knew or had reason to know that it was restricted. What Judge McFadden concluded is that the government failed to satisfy that burden McFadden reviewed video footage of Martin entering the building and didn't find any evidence that he intended to disrupt Congress. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Two men are under arrest after the FBI raided their home in Washington, D.C. yesterday. They're accused of posing as federal officers in order to get close to Secret Service agents working for the Biden family. The two suspects allegedly first started making contact with Secret Service agents two years ago by moving into the same building and offering gifts. They reportedly gave the agents a rent-free apartment worth $40,000 per year and smaller things like iPhones and TVs. The suspects allegedly obtained guns and other material to act as if they were part of Homeland Security. And as you can see in this screenshot, they took pictures from the Internet and used them as if they were their own when communicating with real agents. Their goal was to get close to the Secret Service agents who protect the First Lady. Hi, everyone. Jen Psaki referred questions to Homeland Security when asked about the incident. I don't have any comment from here. I'd point you to uh, the Secret Service um, and others investigating. The FBI raided the suspect's apartment on Wednesday evening and arrested them. NTD spoke with an eyewitness who saw the raid. I see what is a group of um, arms, armed police officers of some sort. Um, and then I realized it was the FBI uh, with assault rifles getting ready to go into this luxury complex that's next door to me. 
He says one neighbor told him that she was already suspicious of the two suspects before the raid. She had met them before, and they always liked to show off that they were part of the, the, the um, some government agency, I think Homeland Security, I think she said, um, and they always were showing off their equipment and being able to live in this luxury apartment because the government's paying for it. So um, it, she said it just looked weird to her. And I mean, after reading it myself, I was just like, how does someone even believe that? Four Secret Service agents have now been put on leave. A judge who was appointed by former President Bill Clinton is set to judge a lawsuit against Hillary Clinton. Former President Trump demanded that Judge Donald Middlebrooks step back from the case, but Middlebrooks declined to recuse himself. The judge said he's never met or spoken with either Bill or Hillary Clinton, and apart from being appointed by the former president, he hasn't had a relationship with either. A federal appeals court said in writing that Middlebrooks' impartiality is challenged by the very nature of his appointment to the federal bench by the defendant's husband. Being a lawmaker comes with sacrifices, but should selling your stocks, and even perhaps your families, be one of them? NTD's Iris Tao has more on the latest debate on Capitol Hill on whether to ban members of Congress from stock trading. Uh, we are elected to serve the people, not stock portfolios. Citing a need to regain public trust, Democrats are renewing a call to ban lawmakers from trading stocks. Whether we are thinking about padding our pockets or if we're thinking about representing the public interest. And there is a deficit of trust in the American people. There has been an array of proposals to ban or restrict the practice. But lawmakers are still debating on how far legislation should ultimately go. Council. A Thursday congressional hearing took stock of the issue, with some witnesses echoing the idea that not only lawmakers but also their spouses and children should be subject to the ban. Some members may have questions about the impact of these reforms on their own or their family's interests. These concerns are not more important than the public's right to know. The push comes after dozens of lawmakers were found to have committed violations of a federal conflict of interest law known as the Stock Act. And amid the pandemic and the war in Ukraine, congressional investments in medical and defense companies have also come under scrutiny. Without the public's trust and confidence, government loses its legitimacy. While some Republicans, including House Leader Kevin McCarthy, have said they support a stock ban, others are pushing back. And if we enact something like this that strips the rights and the freedoms of individuals and everybody in this committee is a free American citizen that has rights and part of the rights as explicitly defined by our founders was the right to participate in a free market society. Another question stems from whether such a ban would hurt the not so wealthy lawmakers who want to follow the rules. But our goal also is to make sure that those who want to follow the law and those who want to follow transparency measures have the ability to do so without being labeled corrupt. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Democratic Governor Jared Polis on Monday signed a bill codifying abortion as a legal right. It means, in effect, that even if Roe v. Wade were overturned, the ability to get an abortion in Colorado would remain. But there's more to it than that. I spoke with Abby Johnson, a former Planned Parenthood director turned pro-life activist. Abby Johnson, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. 
And Governor Polis says this bill maintains the status quo, but there are some changes. Under this law, public hospitals and other public facilities aren't allowed to restrict or deny access to abortion. So would doctors be compelled to perform abortions under the new law? Well, there are still federal conscience protections for doctors and medical providers. So technically, they should not have to, but we have seen cases across the country where medical providers do feel like their jobs are at stake if they do not provide abortions or they do not participate in abortion. And at a time when the nation is starved of medical professionals, do you think the law could prompt some doctors to actually leave public medical facilities? Absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a terrible thing to require public medical facilities to provide abortion services. Um, you know, there are many, many private abortion facilities that, that provide, unfortunately, provide these services already. So to require hospitals and public medical facilities to provide these, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. This law is designed to push back against potential changes at the federal level and safeguard abortion access at the state level. What kinds of options do Colorado's local governments have in determining their own rules around abortions? Yeah, unfortunately, they don't. They don't have a lot of of options. I mean, the the state has made their decision. Um, you know, really, the best thing that people can do now is sort of push back at a grassroots level. Planned Parenthood and these other abortion providers generally don't stay or they don't go where they are unwanted. So, you know, certainly people, local governments can try to do um, what they're calling sanctuary city bans. You know, not sure if those are really going to hold up in court or not, but they can try to, you know, organize efforts like that. But, um, you know, a lot of grassroots efforts work. So, you know, going in and organizing out front of current abortion facilities. Um, we just saw outside of Rochester, New York, there was an organization that organized enough, that pushed back enough, and a Planned Parenthood said, okay, obviously you guys don't want us here. We're not going to come. So those sorts of efforts do make a difference and they do work. You've been a pro-life advocate for about a decade. What kind of advice do you have for women who might be feeling that abortion is their only option? Well, I would tell them that there are many, many resources out there that can help them during their pregnancy. Pregnancy resource centers outnumber abortion clinics now almost four to one. There are organizations like my own, Loveline, loveline.com, that are willing to accompany them throughout the journey of their pregnancy and even beyond. So, you know, many women who are considering abortion, about 75% of women who are considering abortion are doing so for financial reasons. You know, money is no reason to take the life of an innocent child, especially when there are so many resources available and people that are willing to walk with them and accompany them on that journey. So I would encourage them to look around, look at the support that is available to them and make a choice that they can live with and that their preborn child can live with. Abby Johnson, thank you. Thank you. Russia is now out of the United Nations Human Rights Council. The UN General Assembly voted today to suspend Russia from the council, and Russia later quit the body completely. NTD's Allison Lee has the details.
The UN General Assembly on Thursday voted to suspend Russia from the Human Rights Council over reports of human rights violations committed by Russian troops in Ukraine. Out of 193 member states, 93 voted in favor, 24 voted against, and 58 abstained. Here's what the Ukrainian representative said before the vote. We view voting to suspend a state's Human Rights Council rights as a rare and extraordinary action. However, Russia's actions are beyond the pale. Russia is not only committing human rights violations, it is shaking the underpinnings of international peace and security. Russia's UN representative denied allegations of human rights abuses. He called the vote an illegitimate and politically motivated step. Today is not the time or the place for theatrics or these kinds of extremely theatrical performances, like the one presented by Ukraine. In fact, the draft resolution we're considering today has no relationship to the actual human rights situation on the ground. After the vote, Russia announced that it had decided to quit the Human Rights Council altogether. Allison Lee, NTD News. The civilian death toll climbs higher in the war in Ukraine, and Western officials continue to accuse Russia of war crimes. But according to a newly surfaced video, the Ukrainian forces may not be so innocent either. Some of the following footage is graphic, and viewer discretion is advised. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. Western officials continue to condemn Russia for alleged war crimes. The sickening images and accounts coming out of Bucha and other parts of Ukraine have only strengthened our collective resolve and unity. But as seen in this video that was posted to Telegram, there appears to be severely wounded Russian troops laying on the street, and they are surrounded by armed Ukrainian forces. It appears as if one of the Russians is still alive. Then, what looks to be a Ukrainian soldier shoots two rounds into the man's chest, but he continues moving. Then another round was fired towards his head, which appears to be a fatal shot. One of the dead men seen on the ground has his hands tied behind his back. The Ukrainian foreign minister was asked about the newly surfaced video. I haven't seen it. I heard about it. I want to uh, reassure you that Ukrainian army uh, observes the rules of warfare. Um, there was, of course, there might be uh, isolated incidents of the violation of these rules, and they will be definitely investigated. As Ukrainian forces continue to make ground outside of Kyiv, the Ukrainian capital is starting to show signs of life, but it appears to be bittersweet. On one hand, it's really nice to be here, out on the street, eating good food. But on the other, our people and soldiers in other regions neither feel safe nor have proper food. So I feel a little ashamed. We decided to open up more space and resume cooking food for our customers. But an ethical question arose as to whether we had the right to work and return to a normal life while our country remained in a state of war. Ukraine's foreign minister called for help from allies as two large operations are taking place in eastern Ukraine with thousands of tanks, planes and armored vehicles. He said it's reminiscent of World War II. Jason Perry, NTD News, New York. Coming up, some are calling Chicago's speeding cameras cash cams. That's because the city issued more speeding tickets last year than the number of residents. The tickets generated a lucrative revenue, but traffic fatalities haven't gone down. And two-way star Shohei Otani is back on the mound and at the plate tonight during baseball's opening day. That and more here on NTD News.
Navigating a world of economic madness, you need to have the right guide. What do today's decisions mean for your tomorrow? We ask why, what's the alternative? Uncover the deeper reasons and the hidden influences and highlight the real opportunities for profit. At Entity Business, we connect the dots for you. Good evening. New York State's court system is planning to fire more than 100 employees today because they're not vaccinated against the CCP virus. The employees' deadline to get vaccinated was Monday. 103 didn't provide proof of vaccination once the deadline came. In addition, four judges are also barred from entering courthouses for not showing proof of vaccination. Many media outlets reported that one of those judges is Jenny Rivera, a judge on the New York Court of Appeals, the state's top court. She has been attending hearings remotely via video rather than in person. Last month, over 150 employees were informed that they were deemed unfit for service. About 50 got vaccinated by the Monday deadline. New York's court system employs over 15,000 staff members and 3,000 judges. The city of Chicago issued more speeding tickets last year than its population, according to the Illinois Policy Institute. The revenue generated from speeding tickets more than doubled in 2021 compared to the year before, but traffic fatalities have not gone down. Critics say that the speeding tickets are more about revenue than protecting lives. Here's more. Chicago's speed cameras issued over 2.8 million citations in 2021, more tickets than its population. According to a report by the Illinois Policy Institute, that translates to one ticket issued every 11 seconds during the entire year. The city raked in $89 million of revenue from the tickets, more than double the amount in 2020. Last March, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot lowered the threshold for speeding tickets from 10 miles per hour above the speed limit to 6 miles per hour. She said that the change was to reduce death or serious injury caused by traffic accidents. Chicago is the only Illinois city to use speed cameras. It has a total of 160 of them. 27 of those cameras collected fines of more than $1 million each. 66% of the total revenue, that's about $59 million, came from $35 speeding tickets for exceeding the speed limit between 6 to 10 miles per hour. One critic cited in the report said, while the city is ticketing people going two miles over the limit, they do almost nothing about other traffic issues, like drivers texting or on their phones or improving roads. But are the cameras serving their intended purpose of reducing accidents? According to the Illinois Policy Institute's investigation, the number of traffic fatalities in the city hasn't decreased. Instead, it's increased from 108 in 2019 to 167 in 2021. The report stated the safety argument seems weak in light of the various studies, especially when the cameras are generating so much money for a city with massive pension debt and spending it can't seem to control. Speed cameras might be more accurately called cash cams. A January study compiled for the mayor's office by the University of Illinois Chicago concluded that the presence of the cameras did reduce the expected number of fatal and severe injury crashes by 15%. NTD reached out to Mayor Lightfoot's office for comment, but we didn't hear back before airtime. 
Insurance company Geico is canceling an internal event that would have featured Muslim activist Linda Sarsour. This comes following backlash from Jewish communities over her advocacy against Israel. The event was to celebrate Middle Eastern and North African Heritage Month. Sarsour is a Palestinian Muslim American activist and organizer. She has been involved in the Black Lives Matter movement and the Women's March against former President Trump. Sarsour is also a supporter of the boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign against Israel. Jewish organizations called out Geico for planning to invite Sarsour, accusing her of anti-Semitism. In a statement, Geico says it does not condone hatred of any kind and it does not stand for or with anyone who does. It says it is not aligned with any form of exclusion. And in sports news, after a 99-day lockout and an abbreviated spring training, baseball's opening day is finally here. And much has happened since the Braves won the World Series last fall. NTD's Dave Martin has more. 14 teams play today, including the Braves, who will raise their championship banner before hosting the Reds this evening. Atlanta made a major change in the offseason, essentially replacing five-time All-Star first baseman Freddie Freeman for Matt Olson. Olsen is four years younger, though it cost them four prospects to pry him from Oakland. Freeman, meanwhile, went to the Dodgers, giving L.A. the most stacked roster in the league. At 5-1 odds, the Dodgers are Vegas' clear-cut favorite to hoist the trophy this year. In D.C., Buck Showalter makes his much-anticipated debut as Mets manager when New York faces Washington tonight. The three-time manager of the year is on his fifth team now and has plenty of New York experience, having led the Yankees for four seasons in the mid-90s. And although the Mets boast the best one-two punch in Jacob deGrom and Max Scherzer, both are out with injuries, though Scherzer might start on Friday. AL reigning MVP and two-way star Shohei Otani starts on the mound and at DH for the Angels, who host the Astros this evening. Thanks to a new rule, Otani won't have to come out of the game after he's done pitching, clearing him to bat even more this season. Dave Martin, NTD News, New York. Tiger Woods made his much-anticipated return to the course today at Augusta National. The 46-year-old hadn't played on the tour in 17 months after a devastating car accident nearly cost him his leg. Woods, who's won the Masters five times previously, looked right at home, though, with an opening round score of one under 71. The all-time leader in tour victories was sporting a slight limp and had a little trouble bending over to read the greens. But he still thrilled the crowds when he sank a 30-footer for a birdie, his third of the day on the 16th hole, and then accentuated it with his trademark fist pump. Round two of the Masters starts tomorrow morning. Coming up, new details about a child molester who was sentenced to a girls' juvenile hall. Further court documents suggest the crimes involved multiple underage victims. The convict was born as a man and now identifies as a woman. And new details on the mass shooting in California's capital city. Sacramento police now say the shooting was likely a result of gang violence. That and more here on NTD News. California state senator introduced a bill to support transgender health care through mandated training. But one woman, a detransitioner, warned against transgender ideology. 
NTD's Daniel Hall reports. Kat Kattenson is a musician, a California native, and a woman who once identified as a transsexual man. Now 30 years old, she accepts that she is an adult human female and no longer believes in transgender ideology. I'm one of a quickly growing number of detransitioners, individuals for whom transition not only failed to improve, but worsened their situation. Gender dysphoria is a symptom and often temporary. In contrast, transgender body modification is permanent, known to cause negative health effects, and there's currently no proof it improves mental health in the long term. But Cattenson, who is using her stage name to protect herself from previous doxing and death threats, didn't know about the consequences of transitioning in her youth. She grew up uncomfortable in her body and was often teased for either her weight or physical development. She began to identify as a transsexual when she was 13 and began taking hormones to transition several years later. I received a prescription for testosterone from the Planned Parenthood here in Sacramento after only a 30-minute phone call with the doctor. No blood work nor therapy was required. My other serious psychological issues, as well as my hesitation due to being unsure of the effects testosterone would have on my singing voice, were of no concern to the doctor. Cattenson says a second Planned Parenthood doctor prescribed her a double mastectomy after a similar call. Her comments came on Wednesday in a hearing at California's Capitol for Senate Bill 923. Senator Scott Weiner authored the gender-affirming care bill. Uh, currently, there is no national guidance on trans-inclusive care, uh, and Senate Bill 923 would serve as a first-in-the-nation model uh, for, to ensure that TGI patients have quality and compassionate health care from providers. The bill will require medical staff and contractors to undergo training about trans-inclusive health care. But Cattenson warned the ease of obtaining these services nearly ruined not just her career, but also her life. After four months of injecting testosterone, I suffered health side effects, including heart palpitations, stabbing pain in my right side, nausea, vomiting, and edema. I acquired a vocal disability that made it painful to speak or sing. She recounted that trans activists told her that the only way to prevent committing suicide was to transition to being male. Cattenson added that transitioning did not help her mental health issues and did not alleviate suicidal thoughts. This is the informed consent model, which is, this is what trans activists are pushing for. This is what they want everywhere. Um, they want you to just be able to get it on your, get the hormones and surgery um, on your first appointment. Cattenson said both trans activists and government services support transitioning, but do not support detransitioning. SB 923 passed the committee in an 8-2 party-line vote. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. New details came out about repeat offenses of a transgender child molesterer who received a light sentencing in Los Angeles. District Attorney George Gascon's office worked to give the offender light sentencing in a female juvenile hall. An exclusive Fox News digital report showed that a transgender child molester who received a light punishment under Los Angeles District Attorney George Gascon is a repeat offender. 26-year-old Hannah Tubbs, formerly known as James, was convicted of molesting a 10-year-old girl in 2014 and as a result was sentenced to serve time in a female juvenile hall. New court documents allege that in August 2013, Tubbs also molested a 4-year-old girl in a library. The alleged attack happened in a Bakersfield library just aisles away from the girl's mother. 
She said that Tubbs exposed himself to her and touched her. According to court documents, she was crying hysterically after the attack. Both the girl and her mother identified Tubbs to responding officers. Tubbs began identifying as female after an arrest last year. Tubbs previously took a plea deal in connection to the 2014 case after Gascon's office declined to transit it to an adult court. His office's action led to outrage over the sentencing. Fox reported that Tubbs bragged about light sentencing in a phone call. Tubbs told a family member, so now they're going to put me with other trannies that have seen their cases like mine, and when you come to court, make sure to address me as her. A DA representative read the previous 10-year-old victim's impact statement during Tubbs' hearing, saying that thinking back to that day when she was attacked made her sick. She says she went through therapy and that the attack destroyed her trust in unfamiliar men. Gascon's office said that they need to learn from their cases and community feedback. And as more municipalities are looking for ways to install universal basic income, a Southern California city is planning to allow universal basic income for transgender and non-binary residents, regardless of how much they earn. One former official called the policy discriminatory. The Palm Springs City Council voted unanimously in March to approve the request of two local nonprofit organizations to help fund a guaranteed income pilot program. They approved a $200,000 funding to both DAP Health and Queer Works to support the initial research and program design for universal basic income. Known as a guaranteed income program, our program will provide monthly financial support to help supplement their income. It will be designed to help financially stabilize community members and learn information to help create future evidence-based policies and programs. The organizations will prioritize support for local homeless individuals who are transgender and non-binary. Violence plagues us. Last year, 80 trans and non-binary individuals were killed because of their status. And while a subsidy program doesn't stop the violence, it helps to be able to actually afford some of the medical treatment that we need to have when we're victims of those attacks. Fox News reported that former San Diego City Councilman Carl DeMaio, an openly gay member of the City Council, called the program outrageous and discriminatory. He said they are opposed to universal basic income programs because they ultimately cause inflation and raise the cost of living on everyone and won't work. The pilot program will last about 18 months. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has enshrined into state law patient visitation rights. This is to ensure patients are never again separated from their loved ones during a crisis, like so many were during the COVID-19 pandemic. DeSantis calls this a fundamental right. Here are the details from NTD's Grace Coulter. During pandemic lockdowns, the suffering of many Americans was exacerbated by policies barring families from visiting their loved ones in the hospital or nursing homes. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis is now ensuring this will never again happen in the Sunshine State. On Wednesday, he signed into law the No Patient Left Alone Act. Protecting patients' rights. State Senator Eliana Garci, who introduced the bill, said it's about compassion and protecting human dignity. During the pandemic, I heard so many families, heart-wrenching stories, frustration, because they could not be with a relative who was hospitalized for whatever reason. We all know of people who sadly died alone, unable to feel the warmth of a loved one, one's touch or a final goodbye. <clears throat> this is unacceptable 
and this law makes certain that this will never, ever happen again. The bill ensures that even during a crisis, patients can have loved ones visit them in health care facilities. It also ensures that vaccination status won't get in the way, barring facilities from requiring proof of vaccination to enter. Also, policies cannot prohibit physical contact such as hugging between their loved ones. They would actually police this where you go in and you said, OK, you may be able to go, but you can't give uh, your wife a hug or you can't give your, your, your kid a hug. I mean, give me a break. Lawmakers previously credited Jacksonville resident Mary Daniel for inspiring the legislation. During the pandemic, Daniel was barred from visiting her husband in his Alzheimer's care home. After 114 days apart, she got a job as a dishwasher at the facility. This was the only way she could see him. Mary and her husband weren't alone. Such policies separated thousands of Americans from their loved ones nationwide. We went through a time period in this country where crisis and emergency became an excuse to treat human beings as something less than human beings. Florida Surgeon General Dr. Joseph Ladapo said Tuesday this can never happen again. According to First Coast News, it was Mary and her husband's 26th anniversary when DeSantis signed the bill. She told the outlet it was the best gift ever. DeSantis says he hopes the federal government will take action to protect patient rights federally. Grace Coulter, NTD News. New details on the devastating Sacramento shooting that left six dead and 12 wounded. City police now say the shooting was likely a result of gang violence. NTD's Chenny Wu brings us the update. Sacramento police say that gang violence was at the center of the mass shooting early Sunday that left six people dead and 12 wounded. In the Wednesday release, the police department said that the gunfight involved at least five shooters from separate groups, and that number is expected to grow. Only two suspects, both brothers wounded by the gunfire, have been arrested in connection with the shooting and so far only face firearms charges. Authorities say they're still determining who the actual shooters were. Police said that at least two gangs were involved. They declined to provide more details or name the gangs involved or the affiliation of any suspects. However, experts say that if gangs are to blame, it would mark an unusually bloody feud. The Sacramento Police Department encourages any witnesses with information regarding this investigation to contact the dispatch center, and that so far nearly 200 videos, photographs, and other pieces of evidence have been received and are being studied. Chenny Wu, NTD News. You'd probably expect law enforcement to enforce the law. Well, one young man in New Orleans was on his way to becoming a sheriff's deputy until he allegedly attempted to supply inmates with marijuana. The sheriff's office said he admitted to delivering the drug successfully at least twice before. 20-year-old Derek Webb of the, Orle of the Orleans Parish Sheriff's Office was fired and arrested after allegedly trying to smuggle marijuana to inmates in jail. The sheriff's office says Webb intended to deliver the drugs to an inmate in exchange for money paid by a civilian. He was charged with possession with intent to distribute, introducing contraband in prison and malfeasance in office. It is not known how much marijuana he possessed. Having more than 14 grams is illegal in Louisiana. A young child strayed far from his home over the weekend in Houston, Texas. What could have been a tragedy turned into a heartwarming story with a happy ending, thanks to an unassuming protector. Here's more. 
Police received a report last weekend that a little boy was seen walking alone along these busy railroad tracks. So it wasn't clear at the time whether the child was safe with someone, if someone was holding him. So, you know, the worst thing is running through my head. Police said that five-year-old Jose got lost for almost an hour after wandering out of his home. Witnesses in the area called 911 and the officers rushed to the scene and something caught Sergeant Salas' attention right away. When I noticed him at first, I could tell he has uh, Down syndrome. I've dealt with other children with Down syndrome. The police officer said he was surprised by how far the boy was able to walk. Then he found a true hero and companion who kept Jose safe the whole time. So I asked the witnesses whose dog it was, and they said they believe it's the child. He said Alejandro, Jose's family dog, walked alongside Jose to keep the boy from danger. Whenever I um, started walking away with the child, the dog started following me. He was on guard. He was watching everyone that was with the child. Jose suffered a few scrapes, but is now safely reunited with his family. A German Shepherd that basically protected uh, this young child and making sure that he did not get hit by uh, these trains that this is a busy area right here for trains. The police officer advised the public to be very careful with young children and call 911 immediately if they run into a similar situation. Call us immediately as soon as you notice uh, that a child is missing because every second counts. Jose's family declined NTD's request for an interview. Officer Salas said the boy's mother is already setting up their house to be childproof to make sure similar incidents don't happen again. NTD News, Texas. Coming up, China could be backing off on its socialist agenda of common prosperity after the policy hurt the economy. And British Prime Minister Boris Johnson says nuclear will be a focus of the government's energy strategy. That's amid an increase in household energy bills and concerns over reliance on Russian oil and gas. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. China could be backing off on one of its most ambitious policies. It's called common prosperity. Beijing said the plan was to tackle income inequality. So why the change of heart? NTD's Don Ma has more. Is Xi Jinping walking back a key Chinese policy? The phrase common prosperity was everywhere in China in 2021. It appeared in state media, schools and speeches by Xi. But this year, mentions of it seemed to wane. It turned up just once 
in a 17,000-word report by the CCP premier. So has Beijing given up on its common prosperity policy? Political scientist and economic analyst Ethan Yang says she won't walk back on the policy. Well, Xi Jinping is up for re-election in November. And so I think that's, what, that's one of the big things on his mind, is that he cannot go into the election stage admitting that he's failed on probably one of the most ambitious economic policies he's ever announced. And perhaps he can take his foot off the gas pedal a little bit. So what is common prosperity? In a nutshell, it's Xi Jinping's way of tackling income inequality. It's a tool for him to reorganize China's economy. A real-world example of common prosperity is the massive regulatory fines on big Chinese tech companies, Alibaba, for example. So why is Xi Jinping taking his foot off the gas pedal on common prosperity? So I think they're backing off primarily because investors are losing confidence. What happened was the Chinese stock market tanked tremendously right after that uh, because of these huge regulatory fines, but also because investors saw that and they saw that the Chinese regulatory environment is going to become more politicized and less coherent uh, based on standard economic theories. So I think the Chinese government knows that. They understand that that's a problem. What was the reason for the regulatory crackdown? Yang says it was part of the common prosperity policy that sought to help boost small businesses in China. Um, that allows smaller companies to, to rise up and create more diversity in the economy, more competition. It doesn't work because a government doesn't really know what companies are going to be successful, what companies are not going to be successful. And so basically, it's just someone's opinion uh, rather than the economic reality. According to Yang, common prosperity has similarities to central planning policies, which failed in the 20th century. Don Ma, NTD News. Over to the UK. Nuclear is slated to produce a quarter of the UK's electricity by 2050, with Prime Minister Boris Johnson announcing plans to build up to eight nuclear power stations. There's also a push for offshore wind and solar power. It comes amid an increase in household energy bills and concerns over reliance on Russian oil and gas. NTD's Jane Werrell brings us this report. Ahead of launching his full energy strategy, Boris Johnson said he'll bring nuclear home. We first split the atom in the UK. We had the first civilian nuclear power plant. We're bringing nuclear home with uh, one nuclear plant and one nuclear reactor every year for eight years rather than one uh, a decade. Under his government's new energy security strategy, up to eight nuclear reactors could be built across the country by 2030. The government set up a new body called Great British Nuclear to increase Britain's nuclear capacity. The strategy also outlines plans to support production of oil and gas in the North Sea, rather than importing it from places like Russia. And there's a big emphasis on renewables as the government tries to meet its net zero ambitions. There's plans to increase offshore wind and for onshore wind, a consultation with a limited number of supportive communities in England who wish to host them in return for lower energy bills. There are also targets to increase solar and hydrogen power. The government says the strategy won't have an immediate effect, though, on rising energy bills. It brings a measure of energy independence, security of supply uh, to the UK. But you're quite right to say that a strategy takes maybe three, four, five years, more years, uh, really to land. This strategy does come amid a rise in the cost of living, and as Britain looks to reduce its reliance on Russian oil and gas, 
Earlier, Boris Johnson said that this new strategy will prevent Britain from being subject to blackmail from people like President Vladimir Putin. But we know from media reports that China General Nuclear has stakes in three British nuclear projects, and the French company EDF is behind six of them. Boris Johnson challenged on this point earlier. But it's understood that ministers do want to find ways to prevent China General Nuclear from being part of this project over concerns of the Chinese regime's involvement in critical infrastructure. Jane Worrell, NTD News, London. Coming up, Ukraine is deploying its latest weapon, an IT army. Volunteers are engaging in a cyber war against Russia. And Ukrainian refugees arriving at the Mexican border say they're just happy to be alive. Temporary shelters there are far from comfortable, but the refugees say it's a perfect place compared to their war-torn homeland. That and more when we return. In Odessa, Ukraine, a stealthier war is being fought by volunteers against Russia. Their weapons, keyboards, and coding. NTD's Chenny Wu tells us more. IT manager Andrew runs a website that enables people around the world to attack Russian websites and online infrastructure from their own computers, even including instruction on how to launch the cyber attacks. There are many people who uh, can't go into directly to, to the war and take uh, the guns on their hands and fight uh, in Ukraine lands. Uh, that's why we de we're developing some projects, uh, like IT projects for these people, who help them uh, find their way uh, and uh, try to um, help Ukraine army to win this war. After Russia invaded Ukraine, the country's vice prime minister, Mikhailo Fedorov, said Ukraine would create an IT army. Targets provided by uh, Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine every day, like this. An official chat in Telegram, IT Army of Ukraine. The Telegram channel listed the websites of 31 major Russian businesses and state organizations, including energy giant Gazprom and Russia's second-largest oil producer, Luke Oil. However, it seems the cyber attacks may also be disrupting the lives of Russian civilians. Attacks that occur from all over the world on the Russian Federation lead to failure of, for example, banking systems. People come to the store and they cannot withdraw cash from ATMs. Russian government entities and state-owned companies were targeted last month, with the website of the Kremlin among those that have seen outages or temporary access issues. And Russia has accused the U.S. of leading a massive campaign of cyber aggression, saying media, critical infrastructure and life support systems have been targeted. Chenny Wu, NTD News. Large groups of Ukrainian refugees have arrived at the Mexican border. They're waiting for entry into the U.S. Some say the temporary shelters are a better place when compared to what's going on in their homeland. Ukrainians' refugees are gathering in Tijuana, Mexico, after surviving the invasion of their country. They are waiting to cross the border into the United States on humanitarian parole conditions. One coordinator says 2,000 refugees have already passed through their doors. People are coming, about 300 people every day. Many temporary shelters have popped up, among them 
This basketball arena was set up by volunteers from nonprofit Agape Ministries. It's a sport arena, so we call it hub. Uh, when uh, people are coming to airport, we bring in people here, and they're staying here for two, three days. We're feeding people, and uh, just for them, uh, kind of taking care of them. But here, refugees can only sleep on yoga mats or makeshift beds. For us, it's difficult. A little cold at night, it's cold, yes. But, you know, we stay not dangerous, we stay without war. Because we think about our people who, who live, who stay now in Bravary, in Kiev, in Bucha, in Ipeng. A refugee from Bucha called it a perfect place when compared with what's happening in her home. It's perfect. I'm so thankful for all these guys, all these volunteers that helps us Ukrainians, that we have food, we have place to, to sleep, you know, we have everything. Because like people in Mariupol, for example, they don't have anything, no water, not, no food, nothing. They still need to wait for humanitarian parole status to enter the United States. And in San Isidro, California, other Ukrainians are celebrating their successful entry. I just want to say thank God we made it. God has blessed us and we are alive and well. The trip was certainly a very hard, long trip, but we are very happy, very, very happy. Earlier this week, U.S. Customs and Border Protection said the agency was ramping up personnel and resources at the southwest border. That amid an expected increase in arrivals after the U.S. lifts Title 42, a pandemic-era policy that shut down asylum at the border. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.